0: Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. In today's episode, a conversation with Helen Hayward, academic, writer, and author of Homework. When Helen Hayward had her two children in London 25 years ago, she found looking after them easy. Loving and looking after her kids was straightforward. However, loving and looking after her home was not. She had long been instructed to put her career first. So she did. Yet, yeah, what to do with the mushrooming laundry by the bathroom door? And what about if she actually liked cooking? Homework is a series of personal essays motivated by three questions 1. Is there an art to running a home? 2. Can it be a satisfying thing to do? And 3. Has the work we do around the home, which accounts for roughly a quarter of our waking hours, something important to teach us about life itself? To discuss all things homework, Haywood was interviewed by Readings Programming Manager, Christine Gordon. Here's Chris.
1: Hello, everybody. My name is Christine Gordon. I look after some of the events that happen at Readings, but I also get the opportunity every now and then to talk to authors of books that I have enjoyed reading. I'm very fortunate today because I have the lovely Helen Haywood with us, and she has written a book on homework. Essays on Love and Housekeeping. This is not her first foray into the written word. She has written before on the tasks that a house requires. She's written before about cooking and about senses. She also is a psychotherapist and she also teaches yoga. And I read in her latest book that she's also very good at putting together a gorgeous bunch of flowers. Helen, hello and welcome to the Readings Podcast. Hello, Christine. Thank you. Helen, I was so interested to read a book that has been written about the joys and the dismay, if you like, of housekeeping, of keeping a house. And in some ways, I was astonished because I have been a fan of your work for many years now to find this such a personal book in that we got. It's really your autobiography, but you've put it within these lens of keeping house. Why write a book like this now? Well, it's been a long
2: time in the making. I think it occurred because when I was living in London in a small flat, there wasn't that much to do. I could fit it all in, a full time job, even with one child, I could fit it all in. It was manageable. But when my second child was born, the flat became really small and the tasks became quite long and arduous. And I got to the point of realising that looking after my children was easy, emotionally, physically, it was there for me, that was not a struggle. But keeping it on top of my home life was always a big struggle. And I had been forewarned. I was teaching gender, culture and society. So I was reading Simone de Beauvoir and Adorno and all the big people, the Foucault people, and really the only person that talked about this side of things was de Beauvoir, but in such a dismissive way. So she has this scene where she's ferreting out fluff from underneath wardrobes. And she thinks that housekeeping is reduced to that and that housekeeping is really about decay and not about growth. And I just felt at that point that that couldn't be the whole story. It wasn't my story. And I was getting joy from things as well as it being quite hard work. And I felt maybe there really was an art to running a home and people just didn't let on about it. Mm.
1: Your book, you say that you are more likely to mention to a friend about what you've been reading or how long your to-do list was, rather than just say I've been cleaning the house all day and I feel pretty good. Yeah, or or even our sex life.
2: We would share that more readily than (laughs) how we were keeping on top of our home. And yet I came to a bit later, Mihai Shik sent Mihai, who did the seminal and original work on flow the science of optimum experience and so he did this early or the first really time lapse analysis of people had little clickers and they had to click in what they were doing at certain times of day and from that aggregate he came up with a figure that we spend a quarter of our life on what he called maintenance activities for me these are cleaning, cooking, celebrating, errands, finance, hobbies, gardening, laundry, maintenance, organising, pets and renovating. Mm. And that to me is the whole animal. Mm. And so often when I bring up a subject like this, people will, and without even hearing what I say, say housework. Like mm. I will be talking about the big animal, but they'll want to take it down to this, cleaning the toilet or whatever their pet h is, mm. they'll draw it back to that negative thing. And so I was really struck by that. Why is it that we aren't able to comprehensively talk about it mm. and begin to describe it? Well, I now know because it's really hard. Because I think that ultimately housekeeping this big animal, not the little homework thing in the corner. So the big animal takes up a lot of space in our mind. Mm. It inhabits our mind in a fairly continuous way, comes in and out of consciousness, and because I'm a psychological writer, that's what I'm interested in, Mm. the space it takes up in our mind and the the peculiar way in which it coalesces. And so all those things joined up. Let's take Christmas. That's what we do. We don't talk about the thing itself. We talk about our reactions to it, and our reactions are often reactive
1: So what was interesting to me is that you went right back to your childhood to sort of have a look at your entire life through these lens of acknowledging how much homework had taken up in your headspace and that progressive tidal wave of homework coming towards you once you became a mother.
2: Yeah. Look, this book has been written three times, I'll confess straight out, and it's been in the drawer twice. And the second time I got it out of the drawer, It was at the prompting of an American editor called Simone Garindo, who was a really beautiful person to work with, and she just said straight away, this has got to be first person. It's got to come from the heart. It's got to ring true. And you've got to start with your childhood. And I'm no, 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 I didn't want to do that. So I did do that with a little bit of begrudging. And I think it makes it a clearer story.
1: Me reading it it made it much more of a feminist story, actually, because it was first narrative. This was everything that you were experiencing. And the places where I connected to you was when you talked about the emotion that something like an activity would give you. And I was interested because I started writing down in my second reading of it all the emotions that I was experiencing while reading your book. And then I realised in some ways these are so strange because the emotion that I was associating with your work is the emotion that you might expect if someone was trekking up the Himalayas, as, as said in the introduction by Elaine de Botton, or something like that, that someone might get. But actually for me it felt very peaceful to just be allowing these emotions to come over. For example, you do talk about the anger associated with homework and that kind of disparity between who takes care of it and who doesn't. It seems to me a very second wave kind of feminist notion actually.
2: I've lost track of the waves now and I think that in the domestic space that takes the form when it's suppressed of resentment and that's a really hard beast to live with and tackle, turns into all sorts of other things. I think homework is an unconscious conversation that we have with ourselves. Mm. And ultimately it's about the value of looking after ourselves and our home and the people we love most. Mm. And so that weaves its way throughout our life and our mind and our relationships. And also I think that our relationship to home People may argue, and this is my experience. Krista Tippett, you can argue with my opinion, but not with my experience. So my experience is that my relationship to home is as important to my relationships to the people I love most. Mm -hmm. And that's something that has taken me rather by surprise. I didn't think that would happen. Mind you, I did take on a big old house and it accounts for at least a quarter of my day. Let alone the brambles in the bottom of the garden. And so I'm, you know, I'm living the dream, but I'm also paying for it.
1: One of the other emotions that I was so pleased to read about in relation to homework and the task that you outlined in your introduction here was that notion of shame, like an educated feminist. Why do we get so much pleasure from making sure? that the pantry is well stocked or whatever it is that we're on top of the to-do list that we wake up with in the morning. There's no reason for that shame. You write about it very beautifully and I wonder if you could just describe why that felt like an important emotion for you to identify.
2: Well, I would have come at that from the other direction. I think it accounts for a lot of pride. That pride has been unaccounted for in a lot of Well, especially feminist works, but I don't want to frame it with feminism because it's just too powerful and it has—it certainly has a life of its own and I don't feel on top of it now. But in terms of the pride, there's a phrase from a professional cleaner called Melissa Maker, an American I really like, and it's that there's something empowering about learning how to look after your own space. Mm. When you live in a space and look after it, you feel better about it. That's kind of my starting point. It's not intellectual, it's how it feels and how you feel when you wake up in the morning.
1: Pride is something that you do mention quite often in the work. I was sort of grateful to be reminded that we can feel pride around the way that our home looks and how it makes other people feel. You talk towards the end of your book about the pride that you have being able to gather something from your garden and take it over to a friend's place or bake them something, some delicious bread or a tart or something like that to take over, where you understand that the gift is not only the product, but also the amount of time that it's taken to create. And there is that sense in your book that if we could all get on board sort of rejoicing in the domestic slavery of running a home, we all just need to slow down a little to give ourselves permission to have that time. That's amazing, Chris, listening to you. I mean, I'm
2: actually not a, an active therapist anymore because I wanted to write first person. You can't really do both. But I'm sitting here listening, thinking, "Oh, this question's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. What we do at home, let's forget about home in kind of parentheses, but what we do in the place that we live has a deep connection to ourselves and what we make with our hands, we give with our heart. We've been steeped in this kind of, I don't know, I think mistaken idea that it's a little bit old-fashioned and we haven't got time for things. We're trying to change the world and not our own homes. Mm. But really, I'm with Voltaire, you know, you tend your own garden and start there and it matters. And that's what people respond to. If you are able to express it with love, then they will feel included in that love. But if it is done in a resentful way, you ask six people for dinner and six o'clock, you're bashing around in the kitchen thinking, why did I do this? Well, that's what you will display when they arrive at the door and they'll feel really put out. So yeah, I think that sense of ambivalence that we kind of take on in our late teenage years, looking at my mother, deciding I was no way I was going to live a life like hers. Mm. And I disappeared overseas for 18, 19 years. And during a whole time I had no interest in the domestic and I had no inkling that I would end up loving it. And I was on the side of the negative ambivalence and that if you were doing that, you were subjugated to the needs of others, you are living a compromised life. And there's nothing true about it.
1: That notion of a complicated life comes up quite often as a theme in your work. To me, it seems as a reader, I felt like that you came to an understanding within yourself that it was courage that was needed to overcome that terrible sort of dirty label, if you like, that actually giving and doing for the people that we love is not a crime, but it takes courage. Do you agree with that?
2: There is a problem in the nuclear family, though, and I'll be quite open about this. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not a romantic. My definition of maternal love, because that's the only one I've experienced, is of being run over very slowly by the people I love most. I'm going to say this on your podcast. I certainly didn't put it in the book, but I think it's an act of supreme charity to keep on giving when it's not reciprocated.
1: And you need courage for that, don't you? You need to be brave to keep doing it, to face up to that every single day. As a woman or as a mother, that's bravery. Ultimately,
2: I did it because I didn't care what they thought in the here and now. I should also say that during those 10 years, three people I care about hugely died and three of them in one year. And that was a turning point for me. I sat in a funeral and decided that I was going to stop. Well, not struggling altogether, but I was going to stop beating myself up.
1: There's a passage in Helen's book, for those that are listening along, where she talks about going back to England to visit a friend who's very ill. That was quite a turning point for you, wasn't it? That you were just going to make the most of everything.
2: Yeah, she was a real teacher. And I think that if you have deaths in your lives, and we all do, what you take from that is their gift. Mm. And that's what I took from it that I was going to live up to this thing. And in in terms of strength and courage, I think that resilience is the result of overcoming your resistance. And the stronger your resistance, the harder the effort, but the more valuable the resilience that is the result. I couldn't
1: agree with you more.
2: The keeping ongoingness. It's not complicated.
1: That's interesting. I mean, I do think actually it is complicated for many people that that sort of sense of resilience, because so often women of our generation, when we were growing up, there was no part of us, as you said earlier, and you say in your book, that we were going to be living the lives of our mothers or of our grandparents, that we hoped with each generation something dramatic would change. But the reality of our lives of being mothers has meant that in some ways we just had to find spaces for it. Our lives became busier and busier and our expectations get higher and higher, not only of ourselves, but certainly society's expectations of what we do. I thought that your book, Homework, Essays on Love and Housekeeping, was important because throughout the journey that you describe from childhood, a woman living in her own home by herself, having gone through marriages and gone through childbirth and parenting, gone through those heady years of it, you do keep coming back to this theme of love and being honourable to that notion of what that means, which is what you've just talked about, I think.
2: Yeah. It's a run-over love, though, Christine. Mm. It's a broken, open kind of love, which to me is on the side of agape, not romantic love. The love that finds you and changes you from within and that is irreversible. Do you think
1: that once you have accepted why we do things, what the end result is for ourselves, that's when contentment and happiness can be pure?
2: I studied Freud years ago. One of the things he says in Civilization and its Disconsents, pretty sure it's there, he says... We don't choose our parents, our circumstances, and to a large degree, our character. What, however, we are responsible for is for finding our satisfactions and pursuing them. So rather than contentment, which is another story altogether, I'm more interested in satisfaction. And those things require effort and energy and love and planning. They're not spontaneous, they don't just happen. You need an intention, you need a practice. So I'm interested in homework as a practice, akin to yoga. It's something that you align yourself to. It is a journey, you don't arrive, you're not never done. But there's always this sense of inner purpose and worthwhileness. And I guess I'm trying to reclaim the domestic as something that is worthwhile in itself. Mm. Not more, I'm I'm sort of not getting into the comparative thing. There's a the line from Daniel Kahneman, we're not very good at describing things in themselves, rather in relation to a fixed point. And I think when we're stressed, and most of us are stressed a lot of the time, mm-hmm. we collapse into comparisons and invidious things that don't end up making us feel very good. And unfortunately, the domestic has Filtered its way into that realm. So if it's not an anecdote, it's 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 a put down, it's a denigration, mm. and I think there's something really beautiful about it that we all feel in our soul, we don't always let on about. But things like Christmas prompt that longing. It's a lot about longing, mm. and yeah, I feel that we're responsible to bring that longing to life, mm. even badly. Like yesterday, Christine, I decided my front door should be green. And I wasn't going to say, this is Christmas. I just thought, no, green is good. So I painted it twice and it just looks terrible But because I just went ahead and did it. And that's my philosophy. You just do the thing. It doesn't have to be great. My door will be painted a fourth time this afternoon because I've got friends coming tomorrow and I'll be embarrassed. Just do the thing. I think where we think too much, we're overthinkers. And if you lead from the heart, yeah, you'll end up in a better space
1: this collection of writings that you've put together through this journey of your life is quite significant and i'm hoping that it brings on a bit of a, a bit of a new change i put it in for the conversation and and someone i won't say who
2: said yes but which academic would look at that and i thought
1: damn that i mean for me this is a really serious piece of writing It's well-considered, you quote many, many books, many different thinkers, you analyse each step that you make, you go back, you ponder whether you've done the right thing, you move forward, you take two steps back. All of that is there, Helen. It is a piece of academic work. I believe that. I really do. Because I don't think it's
2: primarily about gender. I think it's only secondarily about gender. And in having made that move, it's been reduced and it's a far richer thing. And it's the thing that older people regret most when they have to go into a nursing home or whatever it is, leaving their home, leaving their practice of looking after themselves. It's very bittersweet. And so I'm saying, you know, let's let's enjoy it, take pride in it while we can, and stop politicizing it.
1: At the end of your book, you do have some top tips as well, which I've Printed out and stuck on the fridge with a terrible oh, magnet good. from a from a gold cast kind of experience. <laughs> it seems appropriate. And a picture of my two children sitting on some poor bastard's knees while he's dressed as Santa. My children are well in their 20s now, but it feels like the right place to have these two magnets with your list of things to do. One of the top tips that I want to give our listeners right now is that to take an hour out of each day and just do the work.
2: That was one of my conclusions, that if you dovetail everything into a finite amount of time, it feels different. Mm. And you scuttle about like the white rabbit. And at the end of an hour, it's just quite a long time if you don't chop it up with other things, you can get quite a lot done. You can get enough done. I'm all about enough. I'm not about master lists. I think that that's a kind of curmudgeonly approach.
1: I agree. You finish with try to do with grace what I have to do anyway.
2: Yeah, because we're keeping ourselves company Mm. in all of those things and a lot of those things we do alone. Yeah. And so... That's why I'm emphasising the relationship with oneself and one home and clarifying that and speaking to that, being true to that.
1: Ellen, you've done a beautiful job. Thank you so much for joining us today. You remind me of some graffiti that is just down the road from my place and on a big wall there that's nearly covered now with other sort of tags and and layers of paint. other words, be kind, have courage. That's what I thought about your writing. It was a reminder to be kind and to have courage and to own what you love. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank
2: you, Christine.
0: Homework is available via all reading stores and from our website. We'll find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to E! News or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.